Hello, we're back again with another installment of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today for episode 20, my guest is architect and builder Mike Young. In golf design, there's a kind of design-build model of construction that exists as a kind of romanticized ideal, the Pete Dye, Tom Doak, and Bill Core vision, in which a team of artists makes a golf course in the field, working the ground intuitively through sight and feel, until the features are just right. And then there's the almost off-the-grid, do-it-yourself design-build model, exemplified by Mike Young. If you don't live in the Southeast, and if you don't frequent the discussion group at Golf Club Atlas, you probably don't know Mike Young. He's been an architect for roughly 30 years, creating the kind of affordable courses that local residents play every day, mostly in Georgia, doing it on a shoestring with skeleton crews while executing much of the detailing and shaping himself. In doing so, he's developed true passion and concern for public golf and those who play it in unglamorous places, and a correlating distaste for industry pork and needless middlemen that drive up golf's costs. In spite of his regionality, he's known throughout the profession as a kind of straight-shooting, no-nonsense uncle, an architect's architect who simply knows how to get it done and does it his way without pomp and salesmanship and a minimal amount of ego. I met Mike near LaGrange, Georgia at a cool, rumpled little place in the country called The Fields. The Fields was the first course he designed back in 1989, but after several ownership changes, it had become a virtually non-functional property receiving very little play. Young returned and bought the course in 2009 and has gradually revived it, making small tweaks and finding a way to offer value and a fun, functional design with a minimal amount of input. The course, now operating in the black doing over 20,000 rounds a year, could be a model for how successful public local golf can work. If we hope to see an expansion of more smart, efficient, and affordable golf courses, the issues of cost, construction, and value have to be openly discussed. Mike's experience as an architect and builder, plus owner and operator, give him a unique vantage point on golf's economics and what can be called the golf industrial complex. So I attempted to dig into his mind, and though we started a little slow, it was interesting to sit with him and peel back some of the layers of this complicated and sometimes maddening onion. I hope you feel the same way. Here's my talk with Mike Young. Okay, so Mike, tell me, who is your favorite Golden Age architect? <laughs> Don't answer that. That's a wind-up question. Uh, I, from everything I know of you and I've read on Golf Club Atlas and things, that that's one of the things that, that kind of always rubs you the wrong way is uh, just sort of an uh, unbridled and a blind adulation of Golden Age architects and, and the thought that they really, all of their work was spectacular. Do I have that? Do I have that? You read correctly in that? Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I do appreciate the work of a lot of them. Uh, and I don't know that I really got a favorite. Um, well, I, I wouldn't expect you to. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to get that on the record. It's one of the things I was appreciated about your viewpoints is that there's, in golf course architecture and design, which I consider an art, I know we'll get into this, and it's much more than an art for people who are vested in the business. They don't have the luxury of looking at it from a purely artistic or aesthetic viewpoint. But there's there's such a... It, it, an expectation that all the work that was done, you know, prior to World War II and prior to the 1930s was was exceptional, and you know, it, I just don't I don't think that that's always the case. 
I, I definitely think that's not the case. I think that the uh, more thought is put in it today than those guys put in it when they were doing it. And uh, there's some great work out there that was done in the past, but uh, we have tried to complicate matters. A lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast and I've discussed and I'm very interested in exploring uh, comes from a perspective where the assumption is that that golf has made a lot a series of missteps. The business has made a series of missteps and we've gotten us to a point where we've gotten so far away from playing and enjoying the game of golf and I'm ex- trying to explore and think about correctives to that and how can we get back to just enjoying golf as a game that we play and that we walk and we hit the ball and it's social and it's efficient and so everything I kind of that kind of guides the way I look at things uh, but tell me I'm a is that even a correct perspective am I being too harsh on on golf or the industry you know is is that is looking at it that way in your mind is that uh, a, a positive or a fruitful direction or, or should I step back and kind of appreciate what we've got? No, no, I think at the end that that's where we need to be going and that uh, we agree on most of that. The uh, industry has taken a game and made it into a business that it that I disagree with in many aspects and this grow the game initiative just leave it alone it's going to go where it needs to go it's going to take care of itself we just gotta we gotta be there starting after world war ii and and you get into this period where golf courses are being built for different reasons to sell real estate you've got some interesting or uh, perspective on that uh, from just being in the business, being a golf course owner, being on the distribution side, does tell me about tell me your viewpoint about the business of golf versus the game of golf and how the two have related and and how they maybe need to be disassociated from one another. Well, the game of golf is the in my mind is the eighteen hole golf course or the nine hole golf course that that is all across America. Or, or whichever country or the globe. And everything else is taking from that. They're either giving or taking from that. And if, if you don't have that four and a quarter inch hole, there's no clubs to sell, there's no balls to sell, there's no golf carts to sell, there's no equipment. And so when we lose track of that and we make it where that part of the business is having a difficult time making it but everyone else is selling $500 drivers and $75,000 fairway units and we're out of whack and at the end of the day you got to have it where that that end user and that golf course he plays can survive and and they can but we we complicate things so much with with unnecessary stuff that it makes it difficult like what kind of unnecessary stuff well as we talked earlier the word i use is edges but we could spend half of a normal golf budget on edges and that's 
outside the fairways, pine straw, wood chips, the way we mow a rough, the way we plant flowers, um, uh, tea and green supplies, benches, water coolers, so many things that, that can take up so much of their labor budget and they it just makes it where it doesn't, it doesn't add anything to the game it's just the surrounds but don't don't golfers enjoy that that kind of thing and that more composed presentation um i think you can i think they enjoy it both ways i think it's i think you can um tell them what they enjoy and i also think that as we discussed while we were playing that you can't, uh, you've got to give the customer what he pays for. So if the average guy wants to pay $45 to play golf and you're sitting there feeling like you've got to give him a $125 round, you're going to lose. We don't, we don't do it when we go to buy a car. We don't do it in houses, but so often it happens with a golf course. And so often that will happen because they want to protect the lot value or something around the course, so they're losing money. And then a few years down the road, they've sold the lots, and they say, here you are, and they give it to a membership. Membership can't figure out why they can't make it. And how is a a golf course like the fields where we are today? And you purchased this club, I believe, in 2009. It's a golf course that you – it was your first golf course that you built in 1989, I think. How is What kind of model do you have here that, that is a break from the traditional real estate course or the type of golf that I get around Atlanta and that I can't get away from? What, do you, what are some of the things that you can do here to, to break that cycle and make the playing experience foremost? Well, the first thing here is we're open. We don't have that many trees, and so we mow at one height of cut. And uh, we're not surrounded by homes, so that lends us lends itself to where we can mow it and take care of it in a totally different manner. And uh, the golfer's more free to hit it where he wants to, and we use angles to come in, and that makes the makes the game here. But as I go back and think, we've got a lot of older courses that are set up that way. But then um, a membership grabs it and starts planting memorial trees. And then the county extension agent gives them 2,000 pine trees and they plant them. And the next thing you know, they've got trees in the middle of the fairway and talking about how that makes the course more difficult. Is that the model kind of going forward if golf's going to break this cycle? And I keep trying to get into this, uh, this topic of golf as being overrun or dominated by a corporate mentality by having too many levels between the consumer and the game you know so as maintenance is one of those solutions right you know to present golf in a minimally maintained but quality format and not fall into the trap of having to have the sides of the golf courses presented well or have extra irrigation heads and have everything lush and green or can you so is that is that what you're trying to do at places like this? Try to curve the golfer's expectations into something that's more sustainable and more affordable and more practical and also more fun? 
Uh, yes, that's what we're trying to do here. The The golf course superintendent is the key to all this, much more so than the golf professional. Not to slam my golf professional buddies, but you give me the right superintendent that has actually been on a mower and understands making a profit, you can have an exceptional golf course for for much less than what the average person thinks it costs. Now, I'm not sure the schools and the universities are producing that because I think so often we see guys come out and it's one of those industries where guy comes out and he wants to go work for a prestigious club to where he can get an interview at another prestigious club and the first question that's asked is how much budget do I have and if you give him enough budget he can take that and move to the next club where if that same person had gone to business school he might have gone to work for one corporation and he wouldn't have asked about his budget they would have asked him about you make a profit here I'll move you to this division and to the so it's a they come out of school now looking for preset budgets and we never see the schools come in and teach them the basics that some of these smaller golf courses have to have to survive and there's 12,500 smaller golf courses out there so if you're going to be in that industry, the majority of the guys out there are going to be working for one of those. But they all, there are so many of them are looking to, to make the jump into the upper 10% of the courses that are have the big budgets and where they can show off and they have all the, the new equipment and the, the lush green grass and they can buy all the toys. Yeah, and, and, and I understand that. And I can appreciate it and have a lot of respect for the guys that can take a course to a certain level with uh, also know what their budgets are and I have just as much respect for the guy that I see in middle Georgia that's growing corn in the mornings and going over and taking care of the golf course in the afternoon I think that's what the whole deal's about as, as there's so many people don't realize what a lot of these places operate for and uh it's the industry doesn't go out and look for that or promote that because it's not it's not in their best interest when we talk about industry who who in your mind are the the culprits who are driving the money side of golf and the golf industry well i i wouldn't call them culprits uh, um but i know what you mean the and and they're there's some sharp cookies and we've we've developed a lot of machinery and irrigation and fertilizers and all that can do all types of things that are more than we need and it's it's like um uh, let's compare it to uh buying a Toyota Camry which is a really good car versus a uh 750 BMW and it might be the braking system on the BMW is far, far more expensive and better. But yet, 
the Camry has a excellent braking system. Both of them work on the highway. For we 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 don't need to sit there and say the Camry's no good. And that's what happens in this business, is that when you can sell a let's use a fairway mower. Not any particular company, but when when I can have a fairway mower that will mow a fairway at a half inch and will be a ground-driven unit and will last 25 years just by sharpening it once or twice a year and pulling it behind a tractor. And that unit might cost $25,000 today. Or I could buy two lightweight fairway mowers at sixty or 70000 apiece, have to be sharpened every day, constantly maintained, and they're going to last me three to five years. Work the numbers on that, and that's that's a good example of where we are. And when you grow up seeing that and coming out of the schools with that, you naturally want that machine, and um, that takes your cost up. And it's also difficult for the the consumer, the golfer, to see on one hand an exclusive country club and they have you know perfectly manicured tee boxes that you can put on and great greens and everything's everything's organized exactly right and then you have a public golf course that is doing it smarter but it doesn't deliver that the same level of conditioning excitement we're wired as players to respond to green grass and perfect surfaces so you know that's so to me that's always been seemed to be the challenge is how do you how do you move that expectation or that desire of the player away from the exotic and the almost unattainable except for the rare case of a really uh, well-to-do club into a new reality where they're going to appreciate a different type of service and a different model of golf. Do we have to, I mean, do we have to kind of retrain uh, the consumer on the consumer end? Can you lead by example? I think you lead by example. I think it evolves. I think that you see a lot of guys that are really top-notch clubs that have those conditions and appreciate that. And it's funny, you go to Scotland or Ireland with them, and they get a condition similar to your public course here, and they love it. But come back here, and they won't accept it. Same with conditions. They, they'll play over there with it pouring down rain won't go out here. But uh, I think it's just going to be a generational thing, as we've discussed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to ease back in and um, sort of like a back-to-nature deal. You know, in the 1980s and 90s, if you looked at Golf Digest, you know, Golf Magazine, the publications, the golf courses that you saw on the covers or inside in the colored photographs were high product, highly manufactured golf courses. Not all of them, but many of them were. They're very photogenic. Everything was staged. There, You could tell there was a lot of money put into the production of these golf courses, and that was held up as an ideal for many. And over the last 10, 15 years, you see a different type of course being idolized. It's the it's the the Bandon style, the Sand Valley style, the Lynx style golf course, and that is for most people, 
if not all, but a lot of people, it's held up as kind of the new standard of excellence. And there's a lot to be said for these golf courses. They're probably less expensive to build because they're built on sand. And there's a, there's a lot of positive things about them, and they're they're brilliant. Don't get me wrong, but is switching from one manufactured model into another model that is really not accessible. It's just as inaccessible to the average golfer than the country club super manufactured course of the eighties and nineties. Have we moved, have we moved the needle at all? Is that helpful in any way that we've just swapped one inaccessible a model for an inaccessible destination course as something that we hail as great well well the the bunker that's made to look like it's a jagged edge natural type bunker if you really try to maintain that it could cost more than maintaining a normal bunker so each one of those is separate issue as far as that course it was built in the 80s uh, with housing, so much of that manufactured look with the mounding and it created some maintenance that you can't get away with. But yet, on a lot of these more natural courses you see now, you could get away with a different maintenance because they're wide fairways. Uh, you could blend right in and they don't have a lot of manufactured edges and mounding and all that. So overall mowing wise, you probably could cut back. Bunker wise, you might spend the same amount of money, but you hit on the key, the key's sand. And, and what we've done is built so many golf courses in places where we really shouldn't have built them. And that's, are we gonna try to save all those? Or are we just gonna let everything sort of come back and if it's in a place where it can make it make it you've been a golf course architect and a builder and now a club a golf course owner and i'm wondering now since you've been all around the business seen it from all sides you know the practical aspect of it you've know budgets you know the numbers you know how to build courses you've worked with budgets constructing golf courses do you, what value do you place on the actual design and architecture? Are you wowed by anything anymore, or do you only see, or not? I shouldn't say only see, but but can you disassociate somebody's idea of angles and strategy and bunker styles? Can you can you separate that away from the construction cost, the labor cost, the manu, the maintenance cost, or are are you is your mind compromised because you know so much of, and you have so many different uh, things that you have to think about in your own career and your own business? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think I'm compromised at all on it. I think that that's a bad. That's, I didn't mean to say yeah, compromised, the, uh, but you know, uh, jaded or you know, I'm, you're not well, as I'm easily impressed. Jaded. I, I don't think I'm impressed with the the names as much as some people might be, but you know the names are there for one reason, and that was to sell real estate. And if you look back, most everybody that was a nationally known architect was affiliated with a golf professional or something. Up until, I mean, even Pete Dye had Jack Nicklaus when he built Harbor Club. I mean, Harbor Town, and. Uh, all of the big home builders were going with uh, with names, and so that was that was more of a marketing fee than it was a design fee. I mean, 
I'm not impressed with many of those guys. I, I really appreciate the work of a lot of the guys that are really focused on the design industry. And uh, uh, I think we all sort of see it in the same light that there's been so much hype that if we could just eliminate the hype, everything would overall cost would probably drop but but whether it's a driver or whether it's a development or whether it's an architect there's just just the hype is just killing everything and there were plenty of golf courses built by local golf pro that went out and staked them out and mixed some sawdust with some sand and planted some greens and and today those are pretty good places and so we come along and decide to complicate it and I've had these so-called golf experts come out and be walking around say oh look where that old bunker used to be and I'm like hey dude that's where they dynamited a tree but you know in his mind and it's so we've complicated that stuff and that, and that's that's where I often get aggravated but we just got to cut out all the stuff you 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 i go back again you take almost any design out there if you've got a really good golf course superintendent you'll be fine it's those guys are the they do it every day you give me a a superior design with poor maintenance and 99 percent of the golfers would pick the weaker design with good maintenance because they don't know the difference. And you, so you you would you think that golf course superintendents should be name checked as much as architects? No, or, or would that I, be a bad I, idea? I, 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 I just don't see the. I mean, I think about it, and I mean, we look at we look at surgeons and doctors and lawyers and everybody else across the board i don't know the best surgeon in atlanta or the best surgeon in savannah and why do i need to know the name of the architect it's all it's just just let the business just just go do your thing and quit trying to get in all the magazines and everything else just just do it and build a good product and and you're gonna you're gonna do okay but when you start having these guys coming out of school thinking they're going to come in here and make all this money working for this architect or this architect they're all hyped up they've got to just they just got to go do it and to do it i think you've almost got to be a jack of all trades instead of trying to specialize and sit there and do drawings and go get a general contractor and the end of the day you're going to spend more money than needs to be spent and that's that's not what happens for most of us i i think you know in the last 30 years 40 years maybe maybe even going back into the 1960s with trent jones it, it was probably a good career to get into the business by signing on with a firm and by the time you're into the 80s and 90s you have firms like fazio and nicholas and palmer and who have uh, you know, dozens of employees and, and number of associates and people under the associates. So it was a corporation that it was a viable way in. There's, there were jobs there, and that was kind of the model of how you could get in and learn. 
and then maybe later go out on your own. And But that doesn't seem to exist anymore. Do you see that model even present? Is that even an option? Because we know the other way to do it is to go work for a guy who builds in the field, learn how to operate machinery, learn the trade, learn how to do different things, and then just become the jack of all trades or be viable in a lot of different fields and a lot of different areas, and then occasionally maybe get some of your own projects. I think people in the industry are looking at that model now and seeing maybe that's the way to go or that's that's the path forward, whereas those desk and design jobs, I don't even know if they exist. Do those desk jobs even, <laughs> are there any, any anymore? I, th- I think there's probably a few desk jobs, but but I, I'm not a, I'm probably not the person to ask on that because I'm more of an in-the-field guy. And I, uh, the the big names that were hiring all these people, when things slowed down, they started getting rid of them. And like, you, t- you take somebody like myself, I've got around 25 courses I've designed built in just in Georgia and people in Georgia know those but nowhere else they're going to know it but yet that guy that was working in the office of say a prominent say a Fazio for example if Fazio decides to not need him anymore he's starting from scratch I mean and and what I've seen is when I've been with some people that were in the office so much, um, they might know what they want drawn, and they might know the look they want when they see it in the field, but do they know how to get on that machine and do that? And do they know what happens all day while they're there from making sure there's fuel in that machine in the morning and making sure the tracks are tightened to knowing which kind of bucket they can cut a bunker edge with. And then often, they don't know that. They just have to call up a contractor and let him do that. And so I think the future is in these guys that are focused on golf design. They have a passion for golf design. And they've gone out and gotten on the machines and learned how to put what they want to see on the ground. So often in the past, when it was going big time, you'd have a guy go to landscape architecture school and he'd just want a job. And he'd come out and he'd be working for one of these firms, but he didn't have a passion for design. And now I see these kids that are working for some of these guys that are really good and they can what I call carve the statue. I'm not impressed with the pencil drawing that Michelangelo did of the statue of David. It's the statue of David that that turns the heads and that's that's what we got now is a guy that can build what he what he wants. There are entities in the golf business who don't believe that the design build model can work or is sustainable or that there's a high risk involved in that. And these would be, you know, the big construction companies who, or, and even, even certain uh, architects who are, you know, b- 
build with using contractors and everything's on paper, they view that as, as a threat in a way to their business model. And some people would tell you, the, the contracting companies, for instance, would tell you that you need a contracting company to keep everything on schedule, everything on budget. But is, is, this, is that a dying model? Is there validity to a situation where a contracting company would be a preferable route to go? Or can you almost always, with a good crew and guys who can cut the marble, can you always get the right product in that way? Well, I think that the worst mistake you can make in this business is to be middle of the road. You've either got to be where you want to be designing and hiring a general contractor or you want to be design-build. And I say that because I'm not, I'm not saying that the guys that do design and do general contractors are wrong. I'm saying that I feel like a good design-build company can beat their price every time. Now, obviously when they go to sell against it, uh, they're going to tell them you need it for protection and everything else. But when you get right down to it, it's we're not talking about something that's extremely complicated. And the older I get, I realize that adults love to complicate things so they can charge more. And um, it's one of those things where the free market will take care of it and will figure it out and I think you see a lot more guys now trying to um, work towards design build it used to be in all the photo ops the architects would have a rolled up set of plans and they'd be pointing yeah I love that those are (laughs) but now you see the architects on a sand pro or something like yeah (laughs) in a suit tie yeah but now they're on a sand pro like they're floating a green, and most of the time they don't even know how to drive the sand pro. Mm-hmm. So that's the new thing. It's like I'm out there. So obviously somewhere the design bill rang some bells. And then general contractors don't like guys that do design build because we, we've eliminated that. And um, it's a... Uh, business that I've watched for 35 years now and it scratches each other's back there's a lot of architects that the contractors know to take care of them and I don't mean under the I mean legitimately they they cater to those architects and the architects cater to that contractor and it it ends up being that it's a more expensive product for the end user and that's the end user's choice I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying it's a choice you make. Point isn't even that contractors can't do quality work. It's more that it's it's an additional cost that doesn't need to be spent. There's a more efficient and more practical and affordable way to build a golf course than having this company come in and all these contracts and all of these layers of bureaucracy. Yeah. That's the that's the one of the main drawbacks, right? And the way that the reason that that model may cease to exist at some point, perhaps, be just because the market may realize on a larger scale that there's a more affordable way to get a better or the same product. Let's, let's just say that, give me a, this might take a few minutes, but back in the mid-40s, there was a concerted effort made to 
for the architect to be more professional and to do all of these drawings and then send it out f to a general contractor to build it. Well, that's one way to do it. But if I'm the guy that's designing it and I'm there building it and I can, using a bunker for example, I can look at that bunker right now and see that it's what I want and make my adjustments and continue down the road. That's a lot cheaper than putting something there, waiting on the guy to come out, inspect it, approve it, probably have to adjust it again, make some more adjustments, come back another time. And so in my opinion, I'm not, I'm not saying that anybody's right or wrong, I think I can give the customer a better product, and I know every bit is good a product, um, for less money and more efficiently. And what's funny is so many of, so much of the time we're, we're all using the same, often we're using the same shapers or the same irrigation guy or the same grassing guy, and it's just a matter of being up front with the end user and just saying, hey, here's the guys and here's the way I want to do it. And it was, it was, you know, during the 80s and 90s, a lot of people made a concentrated effort to try to frown upon that type of design. So let, let's talk about you for a minute. <laughs> where, did, where did you grow up and what was your background and childhood like? What drew you to golf and where do you come from? I grew up right outside of Atlanta in Conyers and uh, started playing golf when I was about eight or nine years old. And I um, watched my golf pro at a new course in town. I watched him on a bulldozer build that golf course when I was a ninth grader in high school. And so I worked out there that summer and started digging into it. And then um, when I got out of high school, it was 1970, just so happened that uh, Robert Trent Jones was building four golf courses in the Atlanta area. He was building University of Georgia course in Athens. He was building the Athletic Club. He was building Stone Mountain, and he was building Farrington out on 20. And so I picked up rocks and did a few things up there at Farrington that summer. And I, I remember now there's one guy that was like supervising and he said well if you're going to get into this business you got to get into the turf industry and learn the turf equipment learn that side because that's how you make your contacts and me being a kid I'm like nah 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 I'm going to be a player <laughs> so about seven or eight years later I went to work for a turf equipment manufacturer and I, I started calling on Every golf course in the state of Georgia, Panhandle of Florida, part of Tennessee, and I took photo after photo, and I aggravated every superintendent, and I called every developer, and my goal was to learn all I could from the contractors, and and uh, at the right time, when I had all that, I quit and did my own thing, but I happened to have been born at the right time where it was just starting to come about and set 87, 88, things were starting to take off. 
And so I was able to get courses to, I had plenty of work. Um, and so I didn't, I intentionally did not work in an architect's office because I did not want to, uh, I didn't want to know one style. I just sort of wanted to make my contacts and do my own thing. How were you guided by design? What were your, did you have influences? Did you pick up things or work with people along the way? Because it's hard to imagine you going into a golf course construction project early on and not having some serious influences or things that you like to do. What were those? Well, I read what I could find out there. Some books that now are, uh, McKenzie had a small book out and I read that and, you know, could spout that I knew what I was doing. But but, um, I, I would always, I was intrigued with the routings and I would watch the routings, but I would go to sites like uh, we we would sell the irrigation for a new construction site, and I might go work that site with the architect in their summer or something, and pick up on that. But I would I would talk to the shapers, and I would I would try to find all I could there, and, and just sit and listen in the evenings to what the architect was saying or. As a turf equipment guy, I would call on architects' offices, and I would watch their office and see what they were doing. And and that was when I kept asking myself, you know, this office is a totally different deal from what I see when I'm out in the field. And I was intrigued with the field. And then when I finally, this golf course where we're sitting was my first. And... Um, I had met different shapers, and there was one guy that ended up working with me uh, until he died, and it was a guy named Craig Metz. Now, Craig was a all-American golfer in college at, uh, I think it was East Texas or something. His father was a guy named Dick Metz, and Dick was the pro at Westchester, and um up in New York? In New York. And he was, I think, second in the Masters a couple of times. But he traveled with Hogan. And he and Hogan were best friends. And Hogan made him the pro at Shady Oaks out in um, Fort Worth. And so Craig grew up with Ben Hogan. And he was a um, learned to play golf there. He shagged balls for him. He did that. So Craig had a lot of history and a lot to talk about, but he was intrigued with design, and he would explain the old guys to me and show me slides he'd taken, and he could go, due to his father and all, there were places we could go, and so on weekends, we'd go to all these different old clubs, Century Club, different places around Westchester, and just see stuff. But to watch him shape, and he had he had made an art out of it. And then when I met him, he had been working with the Fazio group some and all. But he was so eccentric that he he was one of these guys. He was his own deal. You had to just let him go. And I learned more watching him and arguing with him and fighting with him and talking. And that probably taught me more and taught me where to go to figure something out and where to find it and uh he was a perfectionist i know um, 
it was a couple of years ago, Kai Goby sent me a picture, and it was uh, Craig had been there uh, showing Kai the ropes when Kai was starting, and he they were standing next to Craig's dozier, and uh, so those are the kind of guys that I sort of hung around. Uh, Sounds a little like Mike Strands, you know, coming. I think it might have been the same type of deal. Craig was. We would have our Hispanic crew, and every morning at 6.30, Craig would have them doing calisthenics. At 11.30, one guy was cooking lunch for everybody. It was that kind of guy, but he, all he would do is eat and sleep golf design. And he, he, was, um, he worked for me for a good while, worked with me for a good while. What happened to him? Um, he had a heart virus, and... He was found in his apartment one day on a job. He had, he had died during the night. But uh, how long ago was that? Uh, Fifteen years. Oh, really? 20, uh, so he must not have been a very old guy. He died. Guy. He was about fifty-eight when he died. Okay. But he was. Um, he played the tour for a little while, and I think that was in the sixties. But. Uh, so I, I hung around those. I didn't hang around a lot of the – I didn't hang around a lot of the modern guys. So that, do you always – do you feel like you've always, because of that, sort of been on the outside, like an outsider? You know, and we were talking earlier about this American golf course, uh, Society of Golf Course Architects, which is really uh, um, an organization, it's like a fraternity of um, a bunch of guys who like each other and want to hang out together is a big part of it. Um do you feel like you've always never quite been on the inside of the industry, or or am I misreading you? Um, I'm I'm okay with the industry. I'm probably I'm probably misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> aren't aren't we all? ASGCA is probably a fraternity, and I've been asked by different friends that were members to apply a few times, and I've done it twice and gone through the little all the routine and at the end it didn't work out and you know i'm not as far as individuals go i have zero problems with most of those guys but uh i just wish that um they would if anybody that if they're going to represent themselves as the the be all for golf design then it should be where anyone that is in that industry that wants to uh participate should participate and that's uh, because if you're a superintendent you can join superintendents if you're pga if you want to be a golf pro you can join the pga and if if you've met the requirements uh you know you you uh go join contribute what you can contribute but not saying anybody's bad guys but when it's uh, basically a trade deal and you've got some guy that you pissed off because you got a job from him 10 years ago and he's put the word out and that's you know we ought to be past that so and I'm kind of like you like I I know some members and I like a lot of them individually I probably like everyone individually but when I look at them as an association I I kind of wonder I have to look at it two ways and I've come to learn this is one it's uh, an opportunity or an, an occasion for people in that profession to come together and, and share knowledge and talk about problems that only other architects might have. And it's, it's, so, it's social in that way. But when I look at them as an organization that pres- does present themselves 
as the professional voice of the industry and the collection of people who know who should know most about architecture i start to have real problems about the the decisions they make and that's why i keep hammering on this this industry thing because there was a way to to design and build golf courses if your name wasn't pete die for decades and that was the sta- it was a standard model and that model of contracting out or f- being affiliated with real estate developments and uh, starting to include a number of peripheral elements that didn't necessarily have to do with golf incorporating those into a, a giant site project led in my opinion to a a culture of golf that is so far away from what it should be. It's so far away from an, an authentic walking kind of British style sport. And those architects, I think, and they, they may disagree with me, but they have to be kind of held accountable on some, on some level. So I wonder what, what they do as a society and what they're thinking about now. And then it kind of rub, rubs me the wrong way to hear when I hear stories about the exclusionary aspect of it as well and how it is just sort of like a a club for the cool kids to be in there, you know, and if you pose a threat to them that uh, it's going to, it's going to ruffle some feathers. And that model, as we've been talking about with the design build element coming up, the design build scares a lot of architects because it's so different than than what they know how to do they know one way to to do projects and now there's they're feeling uh, a little bit threatened by that and you know like we said a, a minute ago you know maybe it's a generational thing maybe that'll turn over but um i just went on a huge long rant i'm sorry i, I, I have th- i think uh, i think that most it. people that are afraid of the design build are afraid of the design build because they can't do the build and I don't mean that against anybody but there's kids out there now that have learned to do the build and have more passion for design than a guy that sat at a drafting table for 10 years and and you know the the going back to the AS um, GCA that you know it's it's 108 it's under 200 people superintendents are 16,000 golf pros are what 28,000 we got under 200 people and my aggravation is look don't don't come in here and tell some municipality or something that you're the way to go and the rest of us that aren't members don't know what we're doing don't play that and at the same time if I'm buying irrigation from one of your sponsors or if I'm specifying this and he's supporting your party and supporting your um, all of your stuff, I don't want to be paying him to help support you when you're trying to keep me from getting a job. So I'm sure that the rest of the industry would just as soon that stuff go away. And... and um, I would think that if you ever look at most of the members, so many of them are every 18-hole course they ever did was for somebody else. So there's, there's, I'm sure that every guy in there is a good guy, and uh, yeah, I think that and probably individually if, they they might have a you know a different 
a different view, a sympathetic view on on like design build, for instance, or the or the culture of golf and how we've gotten off track. But collectively, collectively, it's a collectively you have to ask you you have to ask yourself, just like the USGA and the PGA and everything else is that association there for the member or is the member there for the association and i think in golf we've got a lot of associations where it's now that the member's there for the association that's we've got a lot of associations <laughs> yes we that's do <laughs> and that's that's created a lot of expense in this business when you were working at farrington which later became a metropolitan and then it, it's it closed a number of years ago did you ever were any of the joneses on site i know reese was very involved in that as well uh ron kirby was on site and i'll i'll tell you how that um um when i was 16 years old um my father made me stay in boy scouts like i got eagle scout and so all the Eagle Scouts in the Atlanta area would go. We went to the new Hyatt Regency downtown for a vocational mentor weekend. And I told them what I wanted to do. Well, when I get there, they put me at a table with seven or eight other kids that wanted to be architects. And I said, I want to be a golf architect. And it just so happened that the guy that was our mentor was a guy named John Portman. And John Portman was the big builder he had built the Hyatt Regency and all that and he said he said look I don't know anything about golf design but I know there's a guy that's in town that's doing this stuff that's supposed to be one of the top dudes and so he had a guy take me out to Farrington and that's the first time I went out there and then I started going back on the weekends and picking up rocks and watching uh guys put in sprinklers and watching the bulldozers and and that's when I met Ron Kirby who happened to later have a firm there uh, that did uh, Kirby, I think it was called Kirby Player Griffin or something and they, yeah, they he did, was with, did a few uh, courses Gary Players Gary Players design course. arm yeah. I guess and then um, Dennis him Griffiths and Dennis, him and Dennis were in business for a while but uh, I think Ron works for uh Nicholas or somebody now he might be retired now but for a while he's kind of semi-retired yeah but he went over and did old head or something like that whoever but Ron Ron was a nice guy and I used to I used to go over to his office and aggravate the hell out of him when I was selling stuff they were in Norcross and I think he's the uh, father-in-law of Gene Bates he's Gene Bates father-in-law yeah and Gene Bates is a guy that just this year or last year got into the asga and i've often want i've always wanted to ask him why did you do that i think i read he said that uh ron kirby just finally he finally got tired of hearing kirby you know tell him that he needed to do it yeah it's uh it was you know i wondered i saw where he got in last year so yeah Uh, but never any interaction with the joneses i've not robert not there at farrington yeah i've uh my my wife's family, her uncle was uh, John Schmeiser. John was the uh, head of Florida Golf, which was the – or he was president of Florida Golf, which was Trent Jones's arm, his construction arm. Right. And when his daughter got married, I sat at the table 
for four and a half hours at the yacht club down in Florida where she got married. I sat at the table with Mrs. Jones and Robert Trent Jones. And I, I, this was in 1987, and I pumped him. And he was... Um, he was an interesting old dude. Yeah, what were you talking about? <laughs> uh, he didn't. He didn't really care for a lot of architects, but she he, was a nice. Like, she would talk more than he would. But he was just sort of, yeah, grumpy. grumpy. He was just talking. Yeah, I mean, I think by that point, he didn't travel as much as he used to, and you know, I don't. His firm is really winding down at that point, but it he wouldn't stop place. him from having opinions about things. Oh, he had some opinions. He had a golf course down there called Coral Ridge and it was in um, Hollywood, Florida or somewhere right in there. And um It's where he uh, lived, isn't it? Didn't he live right I, on or he had I some think so. ownership I mean, in that? Yeah, I think he owned it. Mm-hmm. And um he was really good to my wife's uncle who had had cancer and he he really he flew him where he needed to fly him and he uh was really good to their family. And when he had hosted the uh, wedding there, and it was when um, oh man, it was that it was that yacht club where Gary Hart, the presidential guy, got in trouble on the yacht, the monkey, the monkey business. business. Yeah, That's that was it. the uh, um, the Aventura, uh, the uh, Turnberry, Turnberry, Turnberry yeah. Isle. That's mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah. So we were there that day. The Soffer family. Don Soffer was the the don of that yeah. scene, that swinging scene. So I would ask him questions and. I could tell he just was not uh, – he wasn't real happy with a lot of architects, but obviously he – Remember had, anything uh, in, in specific? Um, I mean, he must have viewed everybody as as a threat, even though he was on his way out, but maybe looking after his boy's business. Uh, you know, I didn't uh, – he was hard to talk to, mm-hmm. so I didn't – He probably didn't – really want to talk to some young guy just you know yeah, trying to crack into the business yeah. it, it was his wife was i talked to her probably more than him yeah 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 i asked uh, robert chan jones jr about his dad's relationship with dick wilson and yeah i think he kind of downplayed the rivalry but you had another viewpoint on that because you know being in in um, your father-in-law being in South Florida had some relationships down there too. What did, what do you know about Dick Wilson and, and how he and Trent Jones got along? I, th- I think that, um, I think they drove each other. And I think that, uh, going back to your, um, ASGCA, when, they, when I read the book that Jim Hansen wrote on, uh, Robert Trent Jones, he never in the book mentions Dick Wilson. Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I mention everything else about him, but they never mention Dick Wilson. And I've never had the sons really mention Dick Wilson. But I really like Dick Wilson's work. And um, I think it's right up there with the work that Robert Trent Jones did. And I think that somehow he had gotten under Robert Trent Jones' skin now this this is a Mikeism. This is my opinion, and that all of that is how this entire deal in the '40s came about of having a professional organization. Because that way, you could say, "Hey, those guys that are in the dirt, they're not professionals, and us over here, we draw plans and we do all this, and we're the professionals." 
And I think right there is when it started. And I think we went through the dark ages up until now when these kids have gotten on the dozers and started building. I think we went through the dark ages starting at that time. And that if you look back at the uh, the frat boy, the ASGCA frat boy thing, uh, the Dick Wilson guys are nowhere around. And most, I don't know if any of the Dick Wilson tree has ever been in it. Joe Lee was not allowed. Joe Lee was not allowed. Are in. you kidding me? Uh-uh. I just assumed that he was. What about no, Von Hagee? Don't think Von Hagee was in. Dick Wilson's tree never, never went in. Wow. And there might be somebody out there that's going to call you and say, "Hey, Young's a bozo, and he's wrong," and mm-hmm. they did. But I think if you look at it, it's uh, they right. never let the Dick Wilson tree in, and yeah. that was Trent Jones. So there was obviously some kind of little petty stuff going on there, and that's that's where this business is goofy. That's really kind of this where the design world is right now. Where it's really, can you draw a line between the the people who want to work off paper and plans and the people who don't need plans? Is that is that a fair assessment of where we are at this moment? Yeah. And I think, uh, let me back up for a minute. I think we all need plans, but there's a plan industry where I need a routing plan. I need to go out there and figure out what my routing is, and I need to get that on paper. And then I need to know, I need an idea of what type of shot values I want and the angles I want my green so I might do a two-dimensional of my green shapes and where I want to put a bunker but then after that I'm done and that's that's all I need where if I want to hype a client and give him a million dollars worth of plans and 50 75 pages and come back out and tell a guy to adjust a bunker six inches or something I think that's the difference I think that almost any of us have a basic routing plan and know what our shot values are so that we've got a plan for the so that we've got an idea of what we're doing throughout the course and not just building it on the seat of pants we go so and it, and and other architects to t- the other extreme would be everything's mapped out greens bunkers everything's on paper everything's detailed like a like a blueprint for building a home it's it's preordained and then you, they do their best to install that through a contractor in the ground. That's right. I, I saw, I work a lot in Latin America, and I was at a project next door to one of mine one day, and I saw a signature set of plans that the developer was saying, look, look how detailed his plans were. Well, really, the developer didn't know what he was looking at, but he had taken an AutoCAD, and the first five or ten pages were done at like a 200 scale, and then the next 50 pages were where he blew those pages up to a 50 scale. And then the next 50 pages were where he blew the 50 scale up to about a 25 scale. So you had a two-inch thick set of drawings that consisted of about five pages. But this guy had paid, he had to justify what he'd paid this guy to fly down there. And it was all, and so... 
yeah, that's yeah. There's no room for interpretation when you've got 200 <laughs> yeah. pages of plans, and yeah. you know, 20 of them are on one hole or one feature. That's right. Yeah, it's just. I, it, I wonder if like, and I, I honestly, I didn't mean to spend this much time on the ASGCA, but we kind of. I, I think I took us down a. a I'll probably a get black in trouble hole. for that. <laughs> they got they got nothing to say to you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're not. You don't have the the tartan jacket, but. You know, it, 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 I wonder if, like, projecting into the future, if, if that organization will come to compromise not exclusively, but a majority of, of guys who still want to work on paper and do detailed sets of plans and work through contractors and the people who are doing design build and figuring it out in the field will be their own, not an organization, but they'll just be independent. But the ASG, ASGCA will, will really just be a paper and plan organization i don't know i um after i went through their little ritual last time i sort of just said you know this i don't need this but it was um think about this if if pete die had not they didn't have the notoriety he definitely would not be allowed in the asgca because if if he was a design bill guy and they lots of times they had to bring a guy in like that because they wanted him in because they had so much notoriety um so there are some guys in there that probably do design build and uh, like me when i have a client that needs a lot of drawings you'll do the drawings but you don't ever use them so i'm sure there's a lot of that that goes on but I would think that, I mean, I think it's fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars a year to be a member. And some of these guys, if if they're if they're working for a signature, you know, they'll probably pay for them to be a member. And, but eventually, the guys that are out there now that are building the stuff you see that gets the review, gets the good reviews and all, they're not going to worry about being a member of anything and. And uh, it'll just rely more and more on an industry to support them. You'll have, you know, you look, you go out there and look at how much the industry's asked to support these associations, and and if the industry ever weighs it out and says, wait a minute, we've only got 190, 200 people here, and we're giving them this much money, and half of these guys are working for another company in the industry, so it's it's those things just they'll be there but i don't know how much weight they'll carry right i I asked you earlier a kind of a convoluted question about you know having been around the business on so many in so many different areas whether you could you know sort of break things and still look at architecture from an artistic or aesthetic viewpoint and if you have an appreciation for like you know pure architecture like i would look at it since i don't have to worry about anything but like the actual golf course and how it looks and plays but how have your uh, design have your design ideas or aesthetics changed at all throughout the 90s and in the 2000s up to this point have they evolved yeah i think everybody if you're doing it it, it evolves it uh I never really had an appreciation for what it took to build in red clay until I had an opportunity to build in sand. And I can 
I can tell you that if you're going to have someone that's young that's going to get into business, they need to go and locate where they're working in sand because you can you're going to get more more notoriety there um, and sand is the key to this whole business and um, I'll see features and say man I love those things and try to come back and try to figure out how to do them in clay but you you can't do them half the time it's just the drainage and the water and everything and then the other thing is lots of times when you're in cool season grasses um, water draining onto another area and all is totally different than when you're down in the south and you've got a Bermuda grass where you're draining onto a bent grass or something like that. So features are totally different. And without getting into a lot of details, if you look, I mean, I think often you'd see a Donald Ross bunker in the south and clay was a totally different bunker than a bunker he built in sand. And the regional architects that came along uh, you 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 learn to appreciate more and more of what they were trying to do with without moving much dirt and as you've done it more you, you well let me say when you first when you first get in the business you've got to be intimidated and you've got to think oh man this guy over here they they know what they're doing blah 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 and then you start seeing well there's there's a way to minimalize this and you finally get to where you're confident just to do your thing and i think that's how you evolve more than anything just you do your thing and say hey somebody paid me to do it and somebody's gonna pay me to do it again what was your first job when you got to really work in sand and have that experience i did a uh, golf course out in mississippi that was right off the river that was in sand called beaupre it was a country club uh for in natchez mississippi and it was just a totally different experience you could just go through it like butter and and water moved and water went straight down and um the entire joy job was just where if you were a young guy and all you'd ever worked in is sand and you were creating features and all in sand, you would not have the appreciation for how good that was until you had to come to clay and get into that clay and start saying, whoa, it's a totally different animal. And so that was, that was when I realized it was in Mississippi. Yeah, and unfortunately where we live spend most of our time uh, we don't have sand we don't have sand courses around here it's we're kind of stuck with the uh the north georgia clay and red clay courses and uh it's a limiting it's a limiting medium isn't it i think that's that's true i think that's why the southeast it's so difficult to find really good golf like we see in other areas but but we do have a sand belt in georgia and, and like i mentioned we're doing one Bowden Municipal Course for City of Macon. It's solid sand, and I mean it's a hundred feet deep, and it's it's a joy to work in. But yeah, give us a little background on Bowden. Let's talk. We'll talk about that. Bowden was the first integrated course. I think it was 1961, and it's 
been an old course that was an airfield in Macon, right? In yeah. Macon, Georgia, mm-hmm. and uh, the city was going to close it. And a few of us convinced them to keep it open, and they had us do a master plan. And we just started reshaping all the greens and the bunkers and doing the work to get it back open. And and it's just you go through there, and it's just knock it out you don't have to do near the work you do in the clay and and it's it's where the beach used to come to so on the other side of the highway is red clay but literally right literally where the beach red used to clay. come to <laughs> and then we go over here and we take a excavator and dig down six or seven feet and we've got solid white sand and we just you know everything is just loading truckloads of sand and just creating whatever you want to create or if you want to cut a bunker in you cut a bunker in where that type of land is worth so much when it comes to golf versus having to shape a bunker in clay and then edge it and then drain it out a certain way and then haul the sand in at 75 80 dollars a yard you just you don't appreciate that land until you get it and so this can be a pretty special piece of land but I predict you're going to see a, a an entire. I, I think the sand belt's about to get discovered in Georgia. Sticking with Bowden for a minute, what is the this this could be this is a, a municipal city owned property, am I right? Yeah. So and so they're they're putting in forth the resources for you to come in and and you're staying with the same hole quarters except for maybe one hole. I think you're moving. Uh, to it playing to a different green but essentially you're going in and reshaping the golf course so what what do you think the potential of this course could be people know who've listened to this podcast and been on my site recently know that i went down to winter park a few weeks ago expecting not to be impressed expecting to be underwhelmed because the the hype of the course and the publicity it was getting was so high and it was the opposite i was really really impressed and thought this is a municipal model that I wish we could bottle this up and and take it around. It's it's tight turf, really interesting greens, great surrounds, great recovery options, very fair, very open, very accessible to anybody who wants to play it. So I love the idea of that model. Is that something that Bowden can represent in the Macon area? Yes. Uh, uh, first, I, I like the Winter Park course. I, I've played it twice now, and it's a uh, it's a great model, and it was um, um, it was a design build, and uh, we convinced the city to let us do that in Macon, and I used Winter Park to try to convince them that you know, and I actually talked to the uh, people in charge, city manager, and all down there to how they did it, and did a few of those things. The Macon should be able to do that, and I think they will do that. It's been in a it's been in a tough section of town, and it has the potential to uh, really be something special. And they've got the equipment. They've got a great new irrigation system. And I think that uh, once it gets the new greens in and everything, that the potential's there. And it it's one of those sites where it won't cost them that much to take care of it. So I expect it to do some things. Mm-hmm. What do you are design wise? What's your approach? What's going to make it unique from a design perspective? Um, we're going to take it back to, let's use the word traditional. We're going to have one height of cut. We've 
lowered the tees down to where they're just right above fairway level and uh, put some interest into the greens, uh, put some angles into the shot values, and uh, the fairway widths are a lot wider than they were before. I've probably taken out a lot of trees. Um, because it's sand, I'm taking a lot of the rough areas and just going into waste areas um, that are sandy. Just letting it be. Yeah, we've got a lot of lichens and cactus and that type of stuff out in the sandy areas, and we're just going to let that be and just let the fairway feather out into that. So we're going to teach them to maintain up to there and be a lot of native areas, but but the ball, where the ball lands will not be native. So it should be easy to play, but I think it will, if they promote it right and they do that, then I think it'll pull some play in that's in a it's in a good spot. Yeah, it'll help if you can get the Golf Channel to basically sponsor that course and put it on the air yeah, <laughs> as much as it did Winter Park. Charlie Charlie came up and did a video. and he's, Charlie, he, We're talking about Charlie Reimer, who works yeah. with you in your design business. Yeah, Charlie works with me, and then we we, we do some other things. But he's he really likes Bowden, and he's been up a few times. And so um, we'll, we'll see. We... we you know, I think uh, we might not have the the name and all to get the get the hype that uh, some of those places get on the Golf Channel, but we'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see. And it seems to me that with so few new golf course construction opportunities in America, that the real chance for for golf to be pushed in a new direction and for people like yourself to get work are some of these municipal projects these uh county city or state-owned golf courses that are that need to do something with their property so the potential is there at a place like bowden to hire somebody who's smart and maybe has a vision that's wasn't the vision of the 80s and 90s to come in and re-tinker a public course in an urban area i mean i can't see too many other construction opportunities out there aside from the typical country club renovation yeah i'm I'm not i've i've told you before but i'm i don't have any interest in doing the country club renovations it's like being a home builder and not having any homes to build so you're putting decks on the back right it's that just doesn't interest me it's not that you it's not that there's not guys that do a great job with it and do well with it i just I'd rather go find me a golf course to operate or something and just wait till the right deal comes along. But uh, I think that there's probably potential for what you're talking about. The, what you've got to be careful with when you're on the design side is how they're going to take care of it because I've I've done a few municipal projects and if they just decide not to take care of it, then it reflects back on you. And even though you don't have anything to do with that, the the public doesn't know that. So, you know, a town can let one go to hell, and it's like, yeah, that golf course is terrible. It might be the golf course is good. They just don't maintain it. So you got to be careful with that. And I feel like Bowden, I feel like they're going to take good care of it. It all comes back to ownership, whether it's a city or a, a county or an individual or a corporation. You know, they, they're going to get out of it what they put into it. And the level of knowledge that they have is going to have about how to what they about the design and the maintenance of it is going to have a direct correlation to whether it exists or survives or not. A lot of times these 
municipal golf courses are in the state that they're in because the cities haven't understood how to operate them efficiently. So that's a <laughs> so on one hand it's an opportunity for a resurgence of public golf, but on the other hand, we could just recreate the same issues that we've that they've been dealing with if if there's not people at the top who understand how to do it correctly. I think sad. <laughs> it is sad. I mean, I'm, we look at the Chicago deal that's going on now, and I think it's what what are they talking about? One hundred and fifty million dollars for the municipal course there. Is that the Tiger Woods? The, the Tiger Woods Tiger deal. Woods. So, not saying that they won't do an excellent job. But, it's not uh, what I'm quite what I'm talking about. You know, <laughs> going it's, for it's, it's um, those those things are. It's not the same animal, but there's there's a lot of potential around there to spend a lot less money than some people are told they need to spend. I get I get very envious of people who live in other parts of the country, especially in the Northeast or the Upper Midwest, where there are a lot of old historic golf courses and a lot of great architecture. We I joked earlier about you know how a lot of you know golden age architects are overvalued and or overestimated sometimes, but um, that's really probably not the case. And when these courses are good, they're great. We don't really have any of that here in Georgia. I mean, I, Donald Ross did a, a number of courses here, but I don't know that anybody would make a special trip to see any of them, and many of them still don't look like what he built. You know, the, the restoration, let me put it a different way, the restoration movement never really came to Georgia. There's been a, a few, but like down in Columbus here, I mean, I think Art Hill's company did the Ross course at uh, Country Club of Columbus, your course, Athens Country Club, did a nice one. Um, but, you know, Eastlake is not restoration. We just don't have great examples of true, authentic, historic architecture in this state. Why is that? That's a long-winded question. Well, from the limited research I do, is uh, we were still getting over a war when they were building a lot of what they were building in the Northeast. I mean, it was it was years before this area recovered from, from the Civil War or whatever. What's the proper name for that now? But anyway. The war between the war states. War between the states, yeah. <laughs> we so, could say Civil War. Yeah. So uh, um, we were just still recovering from that. So we didn't have the money that the Northeast had and the old families that could create these country clubs and when we did uh they were few and far between and and we were behind we were behind and we also had uh, different grasses and the heat in the summer was just a tough thing to to grow the type of turf you needed for golf down here so i think that held it back for a long time because our, our we just weren't we weren't meant for it like they were you know golf came out of scotland and the grasses there had sort of grew themselves and northeast had places where that worked you couldn't you couldn't do it here and there were just we didn't have the population to support the places and and my theory now with some of these old guys that they talk about being so great and all is that um almost uh, in each case, 
you've had a club that was capable of supporting that golf course for the last 75 or 80 years and took care of it and it evolved into what it is today whether it's got 3,000 too many trees or whatnot it was all because there was a membership that could do that if you took a lot of these courses they talk about being super super and they were in the condition of a public course down the street people would say uh Oh man, that's terrible. It's no good. So we, your your stewardship of that club over the years has a lot to do with with how people view the design. In my my opinion, great examples the the Ross Course in Palatka, Florida, which is a public course, which is a great old Donald Ross golf course. It's a very neat little course. Yeah. For years, I mean, nobody really knew what it was until they decided to take care of it, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, there's some really cool golf courses around that if they were private with a membership that took care of them, they'd people would start talking about them in three months. Yeah, it just seems, I don't know, I was, maybe I was going for, is there a, a different mentality in, in Georgia about preserving or restoring? Uh, because we do have some some older historic golf courses, Yeah, uh, but they don't look anything like no, maybe I, they're supposed to. I just don't think we have the... Uh, I, I don't think the golfer in Georgia appreciates the architecture like the guy that's been in the Northeast or something and been around that. I don't think it was instilled in us. It was never instilled in me. Um, I didn't really know much about it till I just sort of accidentally hit upon it watching watching a guy in the 10th grade. And most of us just want great conditions and, you know, cultural thing culture cultural yeah. and thing. it may go yeah. back it may go back you know to to generations of of money and a different outset of of what it's like to be in a, a city where country clubs were you know a sign of prosperity yeah to be I, th- I think i think that's a lot of it and i know that like i'll get frustrated sometimes trying to talk to somebody about architecture that i'm sitting there with a group i play golf with and on you have to just slap yourself say wait a minute that it really doesn't matter to them. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. So, you, should I hit so it? just yeah. forget it. Where's the green? Yeah. Uh, what's the best modern golf course you've seen or the one that you'd be happy to play every day? Um, best modern. Well, I, I really like um, Colorado Golf Club. Are you mean in the southeast? or No, in, anywhere. I like Colorado Golf Club. I like. Um, I do too. That's a great play. Uh, I like Cuscoella. Yeah. Um, I like Bally Neal. Um, I'm trying to think of. Um, I like those in the in the southeast. I like uh, Secession. Mm-hmm. I like um, um, Chichesi. Few of those low country, just low different country. stuff. Yeah, Secession's an interesting place, isn't it? It it's is a, kind of a unique presentation of of the holes. They've done a great job with taking something, and that's that's a good model. Good location, good golf pro. It's the whole thing's. They've made they've taken that and made it into the the the, uh, the intangibles there make that place as much as the golf course 
I have unlimited resources, let's pretend, and I want to partner with you. And I say, Mike, I'll buy any piece of land that you want, and you're going to design the golf course. So go out and find the best land. Do you have an idea where that place is going to be? In your mind, what is it? Northern Michigan. Northern Michigan. Northern Michigan. Wisconsin. I think that these courses you're – most people haven't heard of them yet, but the Sand Valley or whatever in Wisconsin. And mm-hmm. I've had a place in northern Michigan for 20 years now that um, up above Traverse City. And once once you see a place like Crystal Downs, and that's glacier land there. And it's where the water just goes straight down. It's just pure sand. Right. And there's, there's a lot of good land up there. And the temperature's right for growing the grass and... You might not can play, but six months. But that's where you can build anything you want to build. Do you? Is there like a specific parcel of land that you've seen, or is it? Is it just the general area? Uh, I've seen some specific parcels that are right there off the lake that would be great spots to do it. And um, but so many of them are similar. It's a it's a good part of the country. Actually, it's my it's my favorite part of the country. Really? Yeah. From going from the south up to northern Michigan. I go up there and play golf. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of golf out there. So you so it's, you're it's, going to a place. You're not going to some remote place that's been undiscovered. You're just yeah. going to this place where it's just great. Yeah. A lot of good stuff up there. Well, unfortunately, I'm not that client. I don't have the unlimited resources. But Mike, this was fun. I appreciate taking the time today to host me at the fields and to sit down and do this with me. Well, I had fun with it, too, so I appreciate you coming out, and we'll we'll do it again. Yeah, we will do it again. We'll get together again. So thanks a lot. Yes, sir. Okay, Mike. Thanks. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I think Mike has a very valuable perspective on the golf course industry, not just because he's an architect, but he lives it. He was a distributor. He worked for manufacturing and maintenance equipment companies selling those. He saw a lot of golf courses. He saw how the business works. He got into design. He figured out on his own basically how to build golf courses. He saw what they cost. He had an understanding of budgets. He had an understanding for what clients could and couldn't afford. And I think so often in his travels, he saw that there's so much industrial padding I guess, that goes on on a typical golf construction site where you have contractors and subcontractors and you pay extra for change orders and you're being constantly sold different levels of equipment, the newest model of this, the next best thing of that. And who who pays for that? Well, it's, first of all, whoever owns the golf course and is paying for it to be built, whether it's a city or a county or an individual owner or a corporation or a resort, and they're absorbing those costs. And then, but who ultimately pays for it? It's the membership or it's the public who's paying the green fee to support that golf course. He simply saw that there's a better way to do it, a more efficient and more functional way to build golf courses. And that's just to try to strip out as many middlemen as you can. You have to have contractors to do a lot of things, but not everything. A lot of it can be done in-house under one banner. And that's what we're seeing today with the most successful design-build companies like Bill Core and Tom Doak and Gil Hans and Mike Young. And they utilize a lot of young shapers who are very talented and are now carrying on that model as they begin to go out on their own. And it's not the right, as Mike said, it's not the right construction method for everybody. There's certainly There are certainly projects, uh, large-scale projects, where you have to bring in contractors and you have a lot of uh, industrial pieces moving around. Design-build is not always the answer, but 
from an economic and affordable and efficient and budgetary standpoint, it often is, and probably going forward on these projects like Bowden Golf Course in Macon, it probably is the best way to go forward for a lot of people. If you don't have a large budget, you can certainly get more for your money when you hire a small crew of people who are going to be handling most of the work and cutting out as many middlemen as possible. I look forward to getting down to Bowden. I believe it's uh, supposed to open maybe in July or August of 2018, so later this summer. I hope it gets publicity. I hope I hope it's worthy of publicity. Um, but with Mike and I know he, uh, some of the shapers that he's using on the project, I have high expectations for how good it'll be. And um, I hope it kind of gets the same pub- level of publicity that Winter Park did and is really a part of the, the change movement that we need to see going forward on these public renovation projects, taking older, run-down properties that need work, that need to be reinvented, and, and by using talented people who understand budgets and understand the way golf should, should and could be played, they can be transformed into shorter, simpler, drier, walkable, interesting, perplexing golf courses. And, and that's the way to grow the game. If you want to use that term, I hate it. I don't care. I, our efforts should be made in making golf better, making the golf a better experience, not growing it. But if you do make it a better experience, you're certainly going to attract more people to it. You're going to get more rounds and people are going to come back and play again. And that's how we make golf healthy. But I want to thank Mike Young. He was a great host. I appreciate him opening up his thoughts to us. As always, I thank you for listening and tuning in. This podcast is becoming more and more popular thanks to you and you telling more and more people about it. I'll continue to bring on interesting guests and talk about interesting subjects. You can always find me at feedtheball.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at feedtheball. A reminder to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. You can also leave feedback there or a star rating. I'm starting to get more feedback and more comments. I appreciate that. You can also leave a comment on feedtheball.com. Once again, thanks to Mike Young for joining me. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until the next episode, everybody take care.